ministry here at Risen Church. We are walking through the gospel of Luke. And so we're walking through Luke's gospel. We're not in any big hurry, so we've been in already for weeks and we still uh, haven't finished chapter one because there's so much truth. There's so much here to mine out, to learn from, uh, and to have God change and mold and shape our hearts in the gospel. And so uh, we are going to be continuing in uh, Luke's gospel for many, many, many uh, months. I see my dad here. Happy Father's Day, Dad. You gotta just call that out on Father's Day. So Dad's here. Happy Father's Day, Dad, and to all the other dads. Let's grab your Bibles if you have them, uh, and we're going to be unpacking uh, Luke 1, 57 through 66 that we just heard read over us. Now, uh, we have to rewind a little bit. If you remember these characters whom we met a few weeks ago, um, at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, uh, we met Zechariah and Elizabeth. And last time we met Zechariah, he was struck mute. So his mouth was closed. He couldn't speak. He couldn't formulate a word. He couldn't get a word out about this, uh, this amazing, miraculous birth that was about to happen through Elizabeth. He was advanced in age. Elizabeth was advanced in age. Uh, an angel had visited him and given them news that they were going to give birth to this child who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And Zechariah didn't believe. He had questions. He questioned the angel about how this would take place. And so uh, God closed his mouth. God closed his mouth because he struggled to get his head and his heart around the promise that the angel had given to him that he would be a father and that Elizabeth would be a mother in their advanced age. He just, he couldn't see it coming to fruition. How was this going to happen and when he could not express believing and trusting in God's promise, the angel said, all right, no more talking. And so for the entire pregnancy that Elizabeth was carrying, uh, John, John the Baptist, the forerunner, he could not speak. He could not speak. And he, can't, he won't be able to speak until we've just read, until that promise had been realized and this baby had been born. So it had been nine long months for Zechariah. Can you imagine? Nine months, not being able to utter a word, though you wanted to. Your tongue was just tied. He couldn't speak. And so we learned from the reading of the passage that he was writing things down on a tablet. So the only way he could communicate was to write certain things down on this tablet and show that to other people as he was trying to communicate. And it's apparent here uh, that he most definitely would have told Elizabeth all that the angel had shown him. All that the angel had told him, he wrote down on a tablet and shared with his wife because she knows what this child is, going, is supposed to be called as revealed uh, to Zechariah by the angel. But you can imagine this nine months of quiet, of silence, of not being able to communicate was a time of soul-searching for Zechariah. Um, this time of silence, a time of repentance even, a time of quiet reflection, a, a time where you're not sure what's happening, you're not sure what's going on, a time of repentance, of not believing God as his, at his word, a reflective, quiet, con contemplative state. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're walking through a season where you're unsure, what is God doing? 
Where is he moving? A time of repentance, a time of quiet, a time of silence. I think the Lord brings us through these different seasons at times in our lives. And so here, Zechariah, in the midst of his own repentance, is considering the meaning of the word of the Lord that was given to him. And he's having to consider, he's having to replay this, I believe, over and over again, I can imagine, whether he really believes God at his word and whether he can really trust God at his word. And he's grappling with that. Um, And we're going to find out, as we just read, that uh, Zechariah passes that test, so to speak. He does believe God in the end. He passes with flying colors. Unlike this time, the last time we met him, uh, he didn't. Uh, And God had done a work of grace in his heart. And at this moment of truth, there's not a slight hesitation, if you noticed, when it came time to say who this child's name was. He expresses his trust in the word of the Lord. And without hesitation, he speaks the name that his child will be given. Now, church, remember, I want us to set the stage a little bit as we're walking through Luke and as you're journeying with us. Sometimes I, I think it's maybe... Um, easy for us to sort of feel like we're hearing campfire stories or we, we are hearing these familiar stories that we've heard so many times before, but I want to remind you of why Luke is writing this. Remember, Luke is a doctor. He's a historian. At the very beginning, at the introduction, when we first started, uh, Luke tells us why he's writing this. He says he's investigated uh, all of the details. He's interviewed eyewitnesses. He, gives first, he has firsthand account with all the players that met and knew and saw all these things. He's, he's hearing firsthand from Mary and from Zechariah and from Elizabeth, and he's writing these all down. And here is one of these very remarkable stories that Luke is telling us in these opening chapters. And what it's meant to do in the Gospel of Luke as he's writing it is is he's wanting to draw us into this story. Not just listen to the story. He's wanting to draw us into the story that he's telling. And he's, he's making some very clear points and he's making some very clear application. He wants to put us almost in, 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 the, in the same seats, if you will, as some of these characters so that we have to make some of these same judgments as these people that are making them in real time as they were, uh, as they were faced with these things. For example, we're, we're not meant to just hear Zechariah's struggle to believe the promise of God and the word of God. We're meant to hear it and be drawn into it as we're reading and ask ourselves the question, do I believe the word of God? Do I believe him? Will I believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Will I believe that God can be trusted and that his promises are true? And like we just sang, that he will never fail. And he will always come through. And that his promises are true. And I can stand on a firm foundation on the words of God. Will I believe? Do I believe that God himself has intervened into human history and has brought about salvation of his children in this remarkable way? We're meant to read and not just listen like a campfire story, but we're meant to listen and hear it and and reflect and ask, will I believe as well? Will I trust? And will I live my life believing the truths of the word of God and let it have impact in my life? We're not just bystanders. 
listening to a good story. We're meant to be drawn in through the recounting of the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this story is leading us somewhere. It's bringing us somewhere. And he's wanting us to birth faith and salvation out of the very words we're reading. That's a beautiful story. It's a true story. And it's not just one to listen to, it's one to live and to own and to believe in our hearts. And this is one of those passages that we come into contact with one of these, with, with one of these moments where we're left to grapple with what I believe we're reading that these characters in the story are grappling with. Um, there's a lot of things I believe that we can learn from this story. There's a lot of things even in these few verses we could mine out. But here's what I want us to take uh, a note of. I think it's obvious that the main point of this that Luke is trying to get out of this as he's recounting the story. You see it in verse 66. And what this story is designed to do is designed to focus our attention on who John the Baptist is. So that our attention on who he is and who he came to point to. Luke wants us to think long and hard about who this guy John is, who this child is going to be. And even all these events surrounding Zechariah and all these events surrounding Elizabeth, all these events are focused and they're funneling toward this, this birth. And we're to think long and hard about who this child is. Because Luke wants us to confront that, that question. He's wanting us to confront that question because if we believe who John is, then we're going to believe who John came to point to as we continue down in this gospel journey. Um, then we're going to have to trust and come to grips with the one John came to point to, the Messiah, the light of the world. Everything is leading up to Christ. Just like we saw, remember, remember back when uh, Elizabeth responds to Mary, when Mary comes and visits her, she travels 100 miles to come see her cousin. And, and Elizabeth doesn't focus on herself or the fact that she's carrying this baby. She focuses all her attention on Mary, the fact that Mary's carrying the Messiah, and she shines a light on the Messiah. And John is going to do the very same thing in his life. And so this gospel is taking us somewhere. It's pointing us somewhere. And so as we look at these passages, I want us to see three things uh, here this morning quickly. I want us to see three things. I want us to see, number one, uh, the joy that was shared by Elizabeth and her friends and her relatives. So we see great joy. And then I also want us to see the origin or the root of their joy. So we see joy pop up and then we see where their joy is rooted. Uh, next, I want us to see and examine a little bit about Zechariah's faith. We're confronted with a different Zechariah than we met uh, weeks before. I want us to confront what he learned in those nine months of silence and repentance and how he responds to the Lord. And then lastly, this morning, I want us to see, um, most importantly, the witness that God is establishing in this passage to, for, and toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, let's look at joy. Um, we see it pop up in verses 57 in 58, it's described this way. When the time came for Elizabeth to give birth to her child, 
she bore a son. And then we read in 58, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, there's nothing, like, on the surface, overly surprising about that. Um, When women have children, when a new baby is born, of course, there's rejoicing. Of course, relatives are excited. Friends are excited. Neighbors are excited. Uh, Meal trains are shared. All the things, right? And so everyone's excited to welcome and meet this new child, and there's rejoicing. Um, There's also probably reason for rejoicing because Zechariah and Elizabeth are advanced in years, the Scripture told us. So it's, it's it seemed impossible that they would be able to conceive and have a, a son. And so there's much rejoicing in this. And so the neighbors and the friends and the relatives would, of course, be thrilled about this and joyous. But Luke doesn't describe it that way. Luke describes it a little bit differently. Notice the way Luke talks about their joy. He doesn't say that the relatives and neighbors heard that she was having a child and rejoiced with her. Isn't that interesting? doesn't say just the obvious. It, well, it's not, hey, we've, we found out that Elizabeth's having a baby, so now we're happy. No, verse 58, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. The Lord, underline the Lord in your Bible. You see the difference? It's not just that she's having a baby. It's not just a matter of luck. Oh my goodness, I can't believe... Uh, we're pregnant. I can't believe this baby is here. Look at all the unlikely circumstances. This isn't a matter of chance. Luke wants us to know without a shadow of a doubt, this is the Lord. This is the Lord's doing. And the roots of their joy, the roots of their rejoicing, the roots of them gathering around and celebrating the birth of this child was because the Lord had mercy and the Lord moved in an impossible situation and they are rejoicing in the Lord together. The Lord had shown her great mercy. God was in the midst of it. That's why they're rejoicing. Because they knew God was moving. God was at work. And so when, when, when God is at work and you're observing God moving, it produces in you joy. And it produces in you joy that overflows. And the community that comes around is expressing their joy, not just in the arrival of a child, but the joy that God is on the move. Amen? That's the root of our joy, church. Christian, your hope is not just in random circumstances. The hope of joy found in the Christian life is that God is on the move and He can be trusted and He is true and that His mercy is poured out on you. Um, Friends, this is true of every aspect of our lives. Not just in this instance. Again, let's, let's dive into this narrative There is nothing that you have been given that is good and treasured in your life that God has not given to you. He is a good father. He is the giver of good gifts. James reminds us of this truth. Every good gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no shifting shadows. And this is a reminder to us of that kind of joy that we ought to share together as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's the birth of a child 
in whatever and whatever other circumstance is happening, our, our joy should be rooted in the fact that God has provided for me, that God has shown up for me, that God has paved the way, that every good gift comes from above. It should spill over into joy. They describe it that way. They heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. It's the Lord that's behind this. It's the Lord who had given her a son. Their joy was rooted in the recognition of God's providence, of God's hand moving, guiding, and protecting. His goodness, his kindness, his mercy poured out. God-centered joy is always different than worldly joy. God-centered joy is always different than worldly joy. Um, and in fact, we see it in this story. There's, there's moments of there's, there's moments of doubt and overcoming of, of fear and believing in the truth of God in this story. There's uh, unbelievable circumstances that Elizabeth is having to trust God in. There's all sorts of difficulty in this story, in this situation. We have Mary is, is obviously, that we looked at last week, this teenager carrying the Messiah, visited by the Lord. Her life is in great danger. There's all kinds of peril surrounding this story, and yet they're bubbling over with joy and gratitude in all that the Lord is doing. Um. I tell my kids this uh, often. I, I'm trying to get them to understand this. Is there's a difference, I call it uh, cheap fun and real fun. Uh, cheap fun is like a roller coaster. It's like you, you pay your, your dues at Six Flags and you go on the roller coaster and you do a few loop-de-loops and it's like ele- you're like screaming and you, if you're real brave, you put your hands up and then you get off. Ten years later, no one writes a book about a roller coaster they rode when they were 11 at Six Flags. Or there's real fun. And real fun is more in the vein of, uh, I'm going to do an Ironman. I've never clearly done an Ironman, so this is not, this is not anecdotal. Um, you're like, this is not true. This guy clearly has never run. Anyway, go with, work with me here, okay? An Ironman, it's like, uh, I'm going to get up every morning, and I'm going to do the, do the deal, and I'm going to train and train and train, and sacrifice, 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 believing in the goal, and running after it, and trying, and sweating, and falling, and worrying about failure, and overcoming that fear and failure, and keep going. And d- even during that race, even in the middle of that race, it's misery. Your legs are burning, your calves are burning, your body is telling you to stop, that you shouldn't be doing this. And even some doctors say, no, you shouldn't. But that's neither here nor there. But you press on, right? Or you're climbing the mountain, whatever it is in your life. And you get there. You cross the finish line. You don't even win, but you just cross the finish line. Those moments mark your life. And actually, you look back on them. And this is the remarkable part about it. You ask someone right after they run uh, an Ironman, like, you're going to do it again next year? No way. I'm never going to do that. It was the worst thing I've ever done in my life. Like, months later, like, yeah, I think I'm going to do that again. Because they look at what, what happened in that process. They're overcoming, they're, they're leaning in, they're, they're believing when they're, when they're faced with doubt, and it's not cheap, it's lasting joy, and they look back on it, and those are the memories, and those are the things that deposit in their hearts to take them through the next step in life, and they draw on those experiences, and they draw on those hard things that now become joyous things as a grace from God. Um, I want my kids 
And I want our family to know cheap joy is not always the joy that we seek out over and over again because it's empty joy. Um, I'll say it like this. This is very preacherish, but we'll go with it. Are you seeking uncomfortable joy in the Lord? Are you seeking joyless comforts in the world? Are you seeking uncomfortable joy in the Lord? Because oftentimes when God's word comes down, you have to believe him at his word. It's going to cost us something. It's going to be uncomfortable and we've got to lean into it. Or are you just seeking joyless comforts of the world? That's cheap fun. Pay your dues, ride the ride, get off and uh, live another day to hope you have enough money to do it again next week. Um, The story points us to true joy that's rooted in the Lord. Even in the midst of uncomfortable, hard things, they're leaning in and trusting and believing in God. Second thing I want us to see and I want us to look at is in verses 59 through 64, um, Zechariah's faith. So uh, the scene is this, that they have gathered for the circumcision of this child that has been born. This means... uh, that this boy who will be eventually called John in the story is eight days old now. They're at the temple. Um, it seems that this family, this isn't Old Testament law, so this isn't normative, but they waited to name him at the day of circumcision. That's not uh, always the case in Old Testament law, but uh, maybe this is a family tradition. Maybe it's a certain custom that they are following personally. So they're there to name this child at the circumcision. And when these folks gather around that know this family, uh, they are assured and they, they assume just being there, that this child's going to be named after his father. This boy is born, he's going to be named Zechariah, like dad. Um, and so they're preparing to name him Zechariah. He can't, he can't even talk yet. And Elizabeth, who believed the angel the moment she heard about it, presumably from Zechariah translating it on a tablet, says, she says, no, that is not his name. His name is not Zechariah. His name is to be John. That's the immediate response of Elizabeth. And everyone around her is arguing with her, right? If you notice this interaction, they're like, there's no one in your family named John. Right? You go back generations. There's no one named John. You don't have cousins named John. Uh, Your father's not John. Your husband's father is not John. There's no one in your family named John. Why are you naming this child John? And so they turn to Zechariah and they ask him. And he says, give me something to write something down on, right? He's in this moment and he can't talk. He's like, let me write something down. And they say they start making hand motions, which is funny because the scripture never actually tells us that he can't hear. They just say he can't speak. So it's kind of like one of those moments where you're like with someone that doesn't speak your language and you just start talking louder at them and you're like, it's like, that's not helping, right? So it's like, uh, they're making, they're doing sign language too. He's like, I can hear just fine. Just give me something to write down, right? He's like, kind of, a, it's almost a comical moment. Um, and so he's, he grabs this tablet and he starts writing this out and he writes, his name is John. His name is John. All of those moments of silence. God's judgment that came down on him that closed his mouth for not believing God's word. 
Not believing God's promise, his silence and repentance has clearly birthed something in him. It birthed a new fruit in his life and his heart because at this moment of truth, when it came time to name this child, there is not a shadow of a doubt in this moment. The answer is an emphatic, writes it down, his name is John in agreeance with his wife Elizabeth. We will believe God. I will believe God. His name is John. And here I think we see something of God's kindness in Zechariah's life. Because that whole ordeal of Zechariah's faith and his, his moments of silence and repentance, his trust in the word of God has clearly grown. He's learned a few things. He displays faith in God's promise. And he says, his name is John. The angel was right. I believe the angel, his name is John. His name is not Zechariah. He says, I believe the word of God. So that adversity that he was walking through for nine months by the Holy Spirit had born something, had produced something, had produced believing fruit into Zechariah's life so that as, at the moment of truth, when it came time to act, he believes. And then in that moment, he writes that down. He, he, he writes down his belief and trust in God. Immediately the Lord looses his tongue. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is a blessing and praise to God. Isn't that beautiful? His trust in God's word, his communicating his belief in God's word, his tongue is loosed. And the first thing now that comes out of his mouth is a blessing and a praise of God. I want us to think about that for a moment here, church. Uh, Because I think there's some of us in here, there's probably many of us in here, if not all of us, in some form or fashion, maybe wondering about how the Lord is moving and what God is doing in some adversity in your life right now. We're all walking through something. Having done this, uh, for over 20 years now as a pastor in, in some capacity, um, I look out and I know that every one of us has a story and every one of us is walking through and going through something right now that is difficult and that you're maybe left wondering, where is God in the midst of this? I think all of us grapple with that. All of us grapple with that. And church, I want you to know, even as we examine this passage here in Luke, that God never wastes adversity in the lives of his children. He doesn't. This is a comfort to me personally as I look at Zechariah and the adversity that he was walking through and God was producing something in him. God was producing belief and fruit and faith in his life that when that next moment came, he spoke and believed God as a, at his word. It's been, a, it's been a trying season for me in my life. I know as I've shared with many of you here on the, on the last month or so, we've, I've experienced um, some death in our family through... Um, tragic means. I've experienced uh, the death of a friend. Uh, We've had some diagnoses come down uh, in our extended family who are struggling with disease. Uh, I've kind of, I've had enough grief uh, for this season. I've had enough grieving with uh, my friends and family for this season, but the Lord has me here for a reason. Um, We've experienced Ashley and I and our family, a, a lot of those things. And, 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 and I think if we're, 
not careful, we begin to question, God, what are you doing? But he's doing something. He's moving. He's forming and he's shaping. And he wants to produce faith and belief and his trust and his promises and his ways in the lives of our people. And each of us could tell a story just like that in some form or fashion in your own lives. That's not lost on me. I know each of you in some ways are going through things. But in that adversity, know that God doesn't want to waste it. He doesn't want you to just move past it. He wants you to, to be in it and learn and trust him and lean on him and his goodness and, and believe him at his word. I had a mentor once tell me this. He said, I never learned anything worth clinging to during times of prosperity, but all that I hold dear I've learned through adversity. Interesting. Um. He was a Navy SEAL, so there was, he had lots of crazy stories, right? I believe that God often works in adversity. And by his spirit, in those moments, he uses to build us up and grow us in grace and to help us believe him at his word and trust him as his word. Now, I am not saying, please don't hear me say, that his good gifts should be despised. They should not be. Every good gift comes from above. We should rejoice, we should celebrate, and we should enjoy all of his goodness, all of his good gifts. And so if you're in a season where you are rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord and his good gifts, praise the Lord. Put an arm around someone who's walking through the valley and help them along the way. And remind each other that God is good, whether you're walking through the valley or you're lying down next to green pastures. He's still good in both places. He's still leading and guiding in both places. But in a special way, I do believe God uses adversity in our lives and by his spirit grows us in grace and belief in the gospel. And this is what happened to Zechariah. And if that's you here today, um, if you are a child of God, do not question that God has purpose for your adversity. It is for your good and ultimately for his glory and for the growth in our lives in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the time comes, friend, when the time comes in your life as you're walking through that adversity, just like we see in Zechariah when you're faced with that, what is his name? His name is John. I believe God of his word. This boy's name is John. It is not mine. His name is John because the angel told me through God and I believe the word of God. How did he get there? Nine months of adversity, of silence, of repentance, of confession. I would imagine self-examination. I don't know all those things happen, but you can imagine what nine months of silence would do to you. When your mouth was closed for not believing the word of God. And here at the opportune moment, he believes and he trusts in the word of God. Last thing to look at, <clears throat> I want to look at the end of the passage is where Luke is headed. He's taking us to the end of the section. Uh, what is the result here? What's the result of this child being born? What's the result of Elizabeth and Zechariah together being absolutely clear about his name and trusting in the word of God, about uh, this name that is given to him? His name will be John. The result is this in verse 63. The result is that everyone is amazed. Or it says this, they all wondered. And then again in verse 65, fear came upon all their, num all their neighbors. So this isn't like a, um, it's, it's not like a, 
I'm afraid of a spider fear. It's an inward awe of God. So fear in the Bible is a reverent awe of God. So we, our culture, we, have, we only have one word for fear. There's different words in the original translations. So biblically, when it says the fear of the Lord is, I was uh, talking with a friend about this this week. I imagine it like this. When you climb if you've done a big hike and you're at the top of the mountain and it's like you're kind of close to the edge and you have this, it is a little bit scary, but you're in awe of what you're beholding. It's incredible. You're filled with this reverent awe and it is dangerous because you're kind of on the edge. It's that type of reverent awe and fear, not I see something scary and I'm running away. You actually made the effort to trek up there and see it. Now you're standing in awe. So the birth of this child, John, the miraculous things surrounding this, uh, Zechariah saying his name is John, believing in the truth and the promises of God, the result of all of this is that they all wondered and marveled at what was happening, and their neighbors were filled with the internal awe and reverence of God through this situation by them believing and trusting in the promise of God. It says it like this as I read it all. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judah. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. 65 sounds a lot to me like Mary treasuring this up in her heart. And what are they treasuring up? What are they looking toward? This is what they said. What then will this child be? It's all leading to this moment. All of these amazing things. Who will he be? He's not going to be Zechariah Jr. They named him something totally different. There's something, there's something going on here. Who will this child be? He's born of almost a miraculous like uh, birth of this older, this, the Zechariah and Elizabeth, who is a miracle that they're actually conceived and had a child. Who will this child be? The Lord must have a great plan in mind for all that's going to unfold through this child, through the extraordinary events surrounding this child. And that's precisely what God intended to do through His amazing hand and providence that's unfolding in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth in John. God is going to focus everyone to look at who this child is going to be. What is he going to be like? What is this child going to say? Who is he going, what's going to happen with this child? Because he wants us to focus our attention on this child, John, because that child's entire life is going to be all about pointing to another. His entire purpose of why he was born, of why God gave us this final prophet is because he is going to prophesy, be the last prophet of the Old Testament to point to the one that we have all been waiting for. This child's life is meant to point to another child. He's preparing the way for Jesus. And just like Jesus will one day look at his disciples when he's in Philippi and say, who do people say that I am? He focuses the question on who God is focusing here in this story. The, all of the people in the hill country, all of the, all of the focus is saying, who will this child be? And they're going to observe and they're going to listen and this child is going to point to another with his life. And all of this church, 
Luke is unfolding this wonderful story. That God is unfolding this plan. And the plan is to point us to our Savior. To Jesus, our Lord. And by His grace, by the work of His Holy Spirit, through adversity, through all of these things, we can trust in His Word that His promises will be true and that He will never fail. Amen? Church, we're going to respond um, this morning by taking the Lord's Supper and remembering Jesus. So I'm going to ask those that are serving to come forward uh, while I pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that the things that we just heard today uh, would root into our hearts and minds, that our joy, God, would be rooted and found in you and all the work you're doing in and through us, God. Um, Lord, I pray that we would be men and women, though we're walking in adversity, though we're walking through difficult things, that we would trust in your word and that you would, through adversity, birth in us a resolve and a hope and a trust that you are good and that you are for us. And Lord, I pray um, that you would help us to believe in this one that has come. And we would remember that he has come to pay the penalty that we deserve, to die the death that we deserved, and that whoever would believe in this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom John's life would point to, would never perish but have everlasting life. And Lord, now I pray as we come and we take these elements, we would remember the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. His body broken for us on this cross and His blood shed for us, the blood of the new covenant that now covers and cleanses and washes us clean. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, church, we're going to sing one last song. Um, and however you need to respond, maybe some of you need to just sit and reflect and uh, remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you need to think about the adversity you're walking through and how God is birthing in you a resolve and a trust that he has a plan and a purpose that is good for your good and his glory. Um, but we have two stations up front here. Uh, we have another station in the back over there that's gluten-free. And so if you need to go to that one back there, you're welcome to do that as well. But I'm going to close uh, reading 1 Corinthians 11, a uh, communion passage, to, to ready our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So church, come as you're ready. If you are a believer in Christ, if he has saved you, rescued you, and forgiven you of your sins, this table is open for you to come and take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of all that he has done. Uh, let's worship him in that way.